welcome to ED's Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Coming up on today's episode, which is all about the legal side of the net zero transition. Friends of the Earth solicitor, Katie DeCower, gives us a behind the scenes glimpse at its current legal challenges against the government's climate policies. Lawyers for Net Zero's chief executive, Adam Woodhall, outlines why in-house lawyers could help build climate competent boards. And the Chancery Lane Project's executive director, Ben Metz, looks at how businesses can hold organisations across their value chains responsible for their environmental performance. Yes, hello and welcome along to the ED Sustainable Business Covered podcast for what is actually our first edition of 2022. Um, so a bit of a belated new year, less belated if you celebrate the new, Lunar New Year <laughs> instead of the January New Year. Um, I'm ED Senior Reporter Sarah George and I'm joined in the ED office today by our content editor Matt Mace. Uh, good morning Matt, how are you doing? Yeah, really well thank you. I think, yeah, uh, it's a bit too late to be giving out New Year's uh, uh, welcomes and whatnot, isn't it? But uh, yep, good to be back, back in the office. Well, if we were to go from when you were last on, you probably owe everyone a happy Christmas as well, seeing as you bunked the Christmas podcast. I think it, yeah, I mean, I think it was literally that. I think, um, yeah, last time I was on was probably cop, wasn't it? So not in Glasgow anymore. No, I feel like perhaps doing seven straight days in the media centre wrote you up. <laughs> yeah, needed much of your R and R for all of that. No, well, glad to have you to have you back, and glad to be back myself actually, because our last couple of podcasts have been exclusively overseen by Luke Nichols, our content director. Um, he produced a two-part special live from his time at Global Goals Week in Dubai at Expo 2020. Um, so that's not more of this series, but it's more of an SDG romp around this mega event, is how i describe it. Um, so if you haven't checked out those episodes already, please do. Obviously, after you've checked out this episode, because Matt and I are going to be hanging around for the next hour or so. And we've got three great interviews to bring you on the topic of net zero from a legal perspective and this is something that's been increasingly in the news recently so after COP26 so just just as Matt signed himself off from from society um, Net Zero Tracker published a report revealing that 90% of GDP is now covered by net zero targets from nations states or regions not all of them are legally binding yet but more of them surely will become so and this obviously places burdens on the nations and on the businesses as well um, so with that in mind, we thought it was a good time to be hosting this episode, and we hope you'll agree. Um, it's a pretty broad topic, and we could have gone any number of directions with this, so we've got three speakers each approaching it from a slightly different perspective. As we mentioned in the intro to this episode, our first speaker is Friends of the Earth solicitor, Katie DeCower, who will be speaking about perhaps the most well-known bit of law on this episode. Friends of the Earth announced last month, that's January 2022, if you're listening um, on demand, that it is filing for a judicial review at the High Court concerning the government's net zero strategy and heat and building strategy. Um, The argument is that neither strategy is going to deliver the levels of emissions reductions required under the Climate Change Act, which was amended in 2019 to include our 2050 net zero target. Um, And for the heat and building strategy specifically, Friends of the Earth is also arguing that the government is breaching the Equality Act 2010, um, which says that essentially for all major pieces of policy, um, ministers should properly consider um, how vulnerable people will be affected. 
This is something we've seen in the papers and we'll be following this year, but how do you go about filing a court case against the government? And what do Friends of the Earth want to happen if they win? Um, we'll find out the answer to these questions and more with our interview with Katie. So let's play that for you in full. Well, good afternoon, Katie. It's great to have you on the podcast. I appreciate you must be super busy with the case. So thank you so much for taking the time today. No problem at all. Thank you for inviting me. No, thank you for coming on. I think that when we covered the um, the launch of the cases, which we paired with the client Earth case that's being bought as as well, I think that was one of our definitely best read of that, that week and probably one of the most read of January. So I'm hoping a lot of people are curious to hear a little bit um, a bit more about behind the scenes because we saw that statement. Um, so it'd be great to hear from you a bit about just that, the behind the scenes. So how um, how it works to develop this this kind of case. So for example, is this something that Friends of the Earth was looking at as soon as the strategy came out to be considering? It actually started even earlier than that. So we have for some time been looking at the Climate Change Act because I mean, the writing's really been on the wall on as far as this government is concerned and lack of action on the climate emergency. So we've been looking at the Climate Change Act, looking at the duties that are on the government, trying to see if there are ways that we can take the government to court over the Climate Change Act for you know quite a period of time now. So we've done that sort of background thinking. And then when the net zero strategy came out in October, then yes, we got to work on looking at it straight away. Um, we obviously read over the strategy and, and started to see, you know, serious holes um, in it and then spoke to uh, the legal team, I should say, spoke to our uh, campaign and policy colleagues who shared these concerns. Um, and then from there, we uh, sought advice from uh, some barristers to see whether there was merit in the sorts of legal arguments that we were formulating. And then um, from there in November, we issued what's called a pre-action letter to the Secretary of State, which, as you may know, is a letter that needs to be sent before you actually file a claim. We asked for them to respond within two weeks, but in the event, they responded um, four weeks later. So then we got our case together as quickly as we could in the light of their response, and we filed our claim on the 12th of January, so just a few weeks back now. Hey, well, a truly exciting time for you. And I wanted to ask a bit more about, um, I'm sure that everyone's read the strategy at that point and come to their own conclusions on the good, the bad, the untimely and, <laughs> and um, the ugly is, I think, how Matt put it in a blog for us. Um, so you, you talk there about some serious holes in the strategy. So could you tell us about the main parts of the strategy um, that are going to be brought up in the challenge? First of all, there's something which is inherently wrong with the whole of the strategy, and that is that there are an awful lot of targets, um, various policy targets, but there is a lack of detail on how these targets are actually going to be reached. And key to our legal challenge is that the policies which are included in the net zero strategy haven't actually been quantified in terms of their uh, ability to reduce carbon emissions. So that means that we have no way of knowing, the public has no way of knowing, you know, what impact this net zero strategy is actually going to have. And we can't see how the government is able to claim that this 
strategy is going to ensure that the upcoming carbon budgets are going to be met. So that's the sort of overarching problem with the strategy as a whole, and that's a key element to our legal challenge. Another aspect is the fact that the government hasn't specified the timescales within which each of the policies it sets out are going to take effect. We've also identified in some of our witness evidence some examples of key, I suppose, sectoral issues. So we refer to the lack of policy um, advanced by the government on behaviour change, which is something that the Committee on Climate Change um, has critiqued the net zero strategy about. So a key area where there's an absence of detail in terms of policy is heating. For example, uh, the net zero strategy includes a target that by 2028 um, we will be installing 600,000 heat pumps a year. The details in terms of the numbers accounted for in the policies just don't add up to that. So that's a very strong example of um, the targets simply not being backed up by the policy details themselves. And another example is agriculture. Um, there's a real paucity of policies to address uh, methane emissions from agriculture. And um, the CCC has said that plans for the agricultural sector largely rely on the willingness of farmers and landowners to undertake measures and future innovation in agriculture. So there's an over-reliance on technology and an absence of policy on behaviour change. And ultimately, technological advancement on its own is not going to get us to net zero. So those are just a few of the key areas of concern that we have. Mm, that last point is really timely because obviously at the moment DEFRA is going ahead with launching the agricultural strategy um, and subsidy schemes, but it's been told by MPs and other experts, you know, like the farmers aren't engaged. So if you, you're looking for that behaviour change, you're not going to get it. And some of the other stuff that you mentioned will be hampering behaviour change elsewhere, I, I expect. So obviously, I feel like a member of the public would be um, more encouraged to maybe change their boiler or their car if they knew what it would do um, in terms of carbon and you mentioned as as well not having that information can't be good for preparing industry and the supply chain for, for meeting targets either. Definitely not um, and I entirely agree with that. Another example of the behaviour change aspect um, that I would mention is in relation to aviation. The CCC has been saying for some time that there needs to be control over um, the demand for aviation and the growth in demand for aviation and there's just nothing in the net zero strategy about that. The, the emphasis is on sustainable aviation fuel but that is just not sufficient. No obviously lots there to, to follow. It did seem that there was a lot of policy packages coming just before COP last year but not necessarily um, yeah, fully in-depth, more more oven-ready than home cooking is the way that I've seen some of them described. Um, I wanted to ask as well, you mentioned that obviously we got the, the news and we covered this on January uh, um, 12th. So what, what are the next steps? When are we likely to hear some, some more news about this challenge to the net zero strategy? Well, we are first of all waiting for the government's response to our claim, which we think we're going to get in the next week or so. Um, and following that, um, we will wait for the court's decision on um, whether our claim has permission to proceed. 
So at a very rough guess, that could be, you know, in the next two to four months. Um, there's not, you know, a specific deadline by when the court has to make up its mind, but that's just a um, estimate based on practice and experience of other cases. And then following that, um, assuming we get permission to proceed, which we of course believe that we will, um, we think that a substantive hearing might take place, you know, any time in the next year or so. Yeah, well, obviously we'll be watching this this space and we've been talking about the challenge to the net zero strategy, but I know that Friends of the Earth is also bringing a challenge to the um, heat and building strategy. Um, so you mentioned how the net zero strategy doesn't necessarily have enough on heat and buildings to meet legally binding climate targets. Um, but I understand that this separate challenge on the heat and building strategy um, is about the 2010 um, Equality Act. So is that something you're also working on, Katie? Yes. Um, so with our claim, it's a challenge to both the net zero strategy and the heat and building strategy in, in the same claim. So right. yes, I'm working on, on both aspects, if you like. So the heat and building strategy is the, I suppose, sector specific strategy to decarbonise heating in homes. Um, and as you say, uh, the argument we're running in relation to this strategy is that the government has breached the Equality Act 2010. And the reason we believe this is because the government has not undertaken any equality impact assessment of the strategy on um, in relation to its impacts on people with protected characteristics. So that means, for example, that we have no idea what impact this strategy might have on, for example, people of colour, disabled people, um, older people, etc. And that really is a glaring omission in, in our view because we know that the impacts of climate change are not going to be felt evenly across society or equitably. In fact, the reality is that the people who have done the least to contribute to climate change are typically going to be those who suffer the most from its impacts. And given this is a heat and building strategy, this is wrapped up uh, very closely with issues relating to, for example, energy poverty, which again, impacts some people a hell of a lot more than it impacts other people. So again, we know from research that disabled people are more likely to be impacted by fuel poverty. We know that people of colour are more likely to, twice as likely to live in areas of fuel poverty than white people. So the fact that these groups haven't been, uh, the impacts on these groups hasn't been considered by the government is we think inexcusable in, in all of this context. And is it the case that they've confirmed that they haven't done that analysis of the impacts on people of protected characteristics and protected groups? Or is it a case that they might have done it, but that hasn't been disclosed? Because I've I've definitely seen both of those in previous um, cases. They've actually told us that they haven't done an equality impact assessment in relation to the heat and wow. building strategy. Yes. OK. Well, obviously, um, obviously, we're talking at, um, at a really, I think, timely moment about this issue. So you'll be listening to this a bit later, but I'm recording with Katie on the um, 3rd of February. So just today, um, we've had the energy price cap increase confirmed. We've had the Treasury's plans to cushion homes against 
um, some of that. And we've also had a report from the Bayes Committee on heat policy um, so far, essentially um, looking at a number of issues, including, as you've already mentioned, public engagement um, and having that emissions benefit um, quant quantified. Um, so I, I know it's really early, um, but you, have you had a chance to to look at, at those and think about yeah, using that as a means to argue that, you know, we need to keep the public engaged with decarbonising um, heat and think about, as you say, a just and equitable transition. So it's absolutely essential that any transition to net zero and the decarbonisation of our economy is just and inclusive. We have to bring people with us on, on this, of course. And that's why tackling things like the energy crisis in a long term and sustainable way is so important. And what that means, you know, the reason we have this energy crisis is because of our reliance on fossil fuels. If there was you know, proper investment in renewable energies, if the government, you know, um, invested in renewables and removed the barriers to the development of renewable energies, which are still in place in this country, then that is the future and that is how we will be able to lift um, people out of energy poverty. Of course, and I've heard that from so many other other organisations this week, so I know that Friends of the Earth won't be alone. Definitely heard that from like the REA, um, Energy Savings Trust, Renewable UK and a great many um, others as well. So I feel that this is definitely something to keep watching um, in the coming months as well. Um, Katie, thank you so much for giving up your time when you're so busy on these cases um, and giving us a look at what it takes to develop them. And obviously we'll be following them um, when you get that government response and the response from the court. So thank you so much for your time on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you once again to Katie for her time. And as I said, we look forward to following that case. Um, I was looking back for this episode and I was thinking about how it feels as if we've gone back in time in a way. So I joined Edie in 2018 and at that point the UK government was being taken to court over air quality. Um, but I remember reading some of your stories from, obviously you joined the brand before me, um, that that was the third one and that you'd covered the other two as, as well. So do you remember what it was like at that time when the government was sort of repeatedly being yeah, to court? It is, yeah, that, that, that phrase you use about going back in time just feels incredibly apt right now. And um, yeah, it was another court case on another... And, and, you know, that hasn't really changed, you know. Friends of the Earth, Client Earth, all that ilk have been filing numerous cases against the, the government since... You know, both before and after that net zero target was in place, we had <clears throat> people expansion still highly contentious as well, and I know a few other um, airport expansions as well. But it's just crazy that after COP26, when we had this new global, you know, the Glasgow Climate Pact in, in place, and it wasn't perfect, but it was generally agreed that it was a step in the right direction and, and that, you know, nations would have to come and commit to new targets this year. And then you just yeah obviously I, I took a lot of annual leave at that time so I kind of I kind of um, didn't have to keep on top of, of the climate news as as, as much as, as you but it, you came back to the new year and all it was was just yeah court case because the the government strategies and plans aren't aren't well I mean I don't think it's controversial so they're not strategies or plans they're still aspirationals there's no real blueprints to get to where they want to get is my my opinion um, and you've now got all this kind of disinformation as net zero enters the, the culture wars it does feel like we have we we, we took a, a pretty monumental step forward at, at 
COP26 and are now, when you kind of, you know, weed through it all and, and see what is kind of spinning in the background, taking two pretty kind of regressive steps back. Yeah, it's a it's a pr- pretty frustrating time in general to be in this space, isn't it? There's so much so much noise and such a different tone to Glasgow. And obviously, you mentioned the the pact that was signed at Glasgow, but even in the run up to that, the government was being taken to court. Um, so, Transport Action Network challenged the 27 billion road investment plan. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, the court decided it wasn't a matter for them. Um, and then later, the pay to pollute case argued that public money shouldn't be allowed to subsidise oil and gas. Again, it didn't get the full ruling in their favour, um, but they did ultimately force Bayes to disclose more on subsidies, and they're counting that as a win, that essentially they can't go back on that argument mm. because it's been said um, in court. So definitely a lot more to come in this space this year. Um, I'm going to close off the first part of this podcast now because in part two we're going to be looking at how day-to-day law in businesses can be used to accelerate the net zero transition. So join us after the jingle for a dive into that topic. Hello and welcome back to the second half of this Sustainable Business Covered podcast from ED. After finding out more about one of the cases being brought against the UK government on environmental grounds in part one of this podcast, we're going to turn to a different part of the legal system for part two, um, namely law within business. As our guest speakers for this part of the podcast will explain, and I don't doubt that they'll do a better job than me, um, when we think of law we're probably not thinking about the kinds of things that make up the bulk of what you might call the legal universe every day. You're thinking probably about those big lawsuits against the government or the high-profile criminal cases that form documentaries or stuff that happens in civil court, but that's far from all that there is to law. In this part of the podcast, we'll be asking about what role in-house legal counsel at business can play in delivering net zero in a science-based and credible fashion. And I found this a really interesting topic because we've all heard of these teams trying to help corporates absolve themselves of responsibility Um, In the past, like oil majors going to court trying to avoid, I say big payouts for oil spills in my notes, but really paying a penny for an oil spill. Um, But can these legal teams ultimately be a force for good? Um, We'll also be taking a look at how businesses can drive sustainability through their supply chains and client bases using contract clauses. And I think this last one is actually really timely because, Matt, last week I remember you covered a report on, on just that, so supply chain climate action from CDP. Yeah, essentially, <clears throat> um, it's this. You know, I think I think everyone knows that the scope-free emissions in the cost of supply chain makes up the the, the bulk of a company's footprint, up to eleven times uh, most for most organisations. But that that engagement level has been uh, incredibly low. Most businesses are are neglecting it, or they <clears throat> they haven't really made strides to implement the you know the, the causes and and the, the stuff that's going to be discussed in this next interview you know and at most they're maybe looking at their kind of first wave of tier one suppliers and not looking down the whole value chain it's essentially this really flimsy uh not even agreement but just notion that the supply chain should be becoming more sustainable but businesses aren't putting the resources uh, in place to, to do that well there'll be lots more food food for thought on supply chains in our third interview but for now I'm going to go back to the order of the topics I mentioned starting with in-house legal counsel and our expert on this is Adam Woodhall who is the CEO of Lawyers for Sustainability 
This is a non-profit collaborative initiative that launched last year, um, and now it has more than 100 in-house legal counsel united in the push for robust net zero. So some of the council that have signed up represent firms that I'm sure we've all heard of, like GlaxoSmithKline and E.ON. Um, so in this interview, Adam will run us through the driving factors beyond the initiative's growth and give his views on whether lawyers for net zero could help bring about more climate competent boardrooms. Hello, Adam. It's great to catch up with you and thank you so much for, for coming on, on our podcast this afternoon. Delighted to be uh, talking to you again. No, great to catch up, even though obviously we have to do it still at a distance um, for for the moment. Um, and it's it's good to it's good to catch up because I feel like the last time we had an actual on the record chat um, for Edie, you weren't doing the whole lawyers for net zero thing. You were doing environmental consultancy um, work and some other bits and bobs um, on the side. So it would be great to just catch up with you to to start with and talk about why you decided to to make that change and help launch lawyers for net zero. Absolutely, yeah. Well, it, it's it's great to be talking again, and I'm a big fan of ED. And uh, when I was working in the kind of sustainability industry as a consultant, it was one of my go-to resources. Um, and what? But and it's because I was actually uh, I was working in um, one of the four main areas of climate action um, that people can take. And what I realised about two years ago that there was a fifth area um, that basically very few people are aware of. Um, so the, the first area is the kind of the one that I was doing, which is it's part of your day job. So whether you're a, a sustainability consultant like I was, or you work for uh, a large organization or even a small one as part of the job or various things, it's in your, it's in your uh, job description. The second area is that um, people are activists uh, in some shape or form. That might be through the Green Party or it might be through Greenpeace or Friends of the Earth, or if you're feeling rebellious, Extinction Rebellion. Um, the third area of climate action is uh, that you, uh, um, it's the kind of eco habits. It's, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle on a personal basis. And then the fourth is like, it's where you put your money. So it's what you're spending. Are you ethically investing, um, getting, you know, an electric car or just, uh, you know, on the simple things. Now, society tells us that basically those are the four areas that you can take climate action, which actually means that only a tiny number of people can take meaningful action because it's only the people that are in the first category that can are really delivering meaningful action. The other three are very important, but they're, they're kind of small comparatively. But what I realized about two years ago was there's this fifth kind of comparatively hidden area of climate action, which is that people that are influential, such as in-house lawyers, or it could be uh, in-house accountants or in the finance or in, a, in marketing, etc. they can really support the kind of narrative around sustainability, climate, etc. And society effectively doesn't realise that. So it doesn't give people that permission to do it. So what Lawyers for Net Zero is an expression of that realisation, because and what I realised was actually there are some organisations that are doing some things around, say, marketing or accounting. Um, they're doing some good jobs as far as I can tell. But then due to some sort of 
some serendipity and then some strategic thinking. I realized that the legal sector didn't really have many people doing much on this kind of fifth area of climate action. So realized that um, that was an opportunity. So I wanted to kind of uh, grow into that. So if that sort of makes sense. It does. And I understand that there was a pilot last spring and then a formal launch later in the year and that now there's loads of involvement in this initiative. So can you give us a flavour of how it's grown and changed? Well, uh, as well as recognising that there's that there needs to be a much larger amount of this fifth area of um, climate action, also recognise that um, if an idea such as this is to grow rapidly, what we need to do is use kind of like cutting edge techniques. And so that's both in terms of, uh, we refer a lot to sort of neuroscience and uh, psychology and behaviour change techniques, but also uh, things that have le been learned from the kind of tech startup community, such as um, there's, people might have heard of the concept of lean startup, which is rapid loops of build, test, learn. So you can basically rapidly understand what's happening in the market. So we consciously started off with a small pilot group of about a dozen or so of the kind of in-house lawyer champions in the spring last year. And then and, you know, it was it wasn't perfect by any means, but it wasn't meant to be. And in fact, actually, in the Lean Startup book, it says if if whatever you're doing at the start is perfect, you're doing it wrong. So we kind of took that to heart. Um, but then it's all about learning and learning and learning and then, you know, tweaking and testing. So then we kept, went up to a launch, which happened in uh, uh, the late summer. And then uh, one of the things that was fantastic in the summer, we had it confirmed that we had a stand at uh, COP26 in the official green zone. So what we did is uh, during the autumn, we did a lot of work about raising the profile in the legal industry um, about not just ESG, but also climate and net zero. Um, and so then that all reached a bit of a crescendo with us being at uh, COP26. And actually, because obviously a lot of in-house lawyers would love to be there maybe, but they weren't going to be there, um, we decided to do uh, a couple of webinars from live from um, that. And that had maybe up to a thousand people across those webinars join us um, from their desks uh, beaming straight into to Glasgow. So um, it was great. And now we've got over 100 in-house counsel committed to taking action and work and, you know, starting to work with us. And we're getting great feedback about our Impact Squared programme that we deliver. Fantastic. And I wanted to touch on this in-house counsel um, focus because um, as we were talking about off, off air, um, we've had Friends of the Earth on this episode, and I think that when an average member of the general public thinks about environmental law, they'll probably think of something like what they're doing. So taking a government to court um, or maybe of high profile challenges brought about businesses like we saw against Shell in the Netherlands um, last year. So why, why focus on in-house counsel? Why is that such an important part of, of law? Yeah, well, what we recognise is it, there needs to be, this is a systemic issue. So we need all parts of the system being worked with. So it's, you know, um, the, the, the energy that um, Friends of the Earth are, um, are delivering, Client Earth are delivering to basically 
um, kind of uh, they're kind of the bad cops in this analogy. Um, and what we'd like to be is effectively the good cops. Where so rather than kind of getting the uh, the kind of like um, uh, knuckle dusters out a little bit as the uh, the friends of the earth and client earth are doing and, and even basically taking companies to court, what we're saying is actually you as an in-house lawyer, you it's your job to basically make sure your company is uh, on the straight and narrow. And that's uh, because it's literally their job to look out for risks and compliance issues and to look across the organizations to be so that they can break down silos. And also they have a, a license to ask difficult questions within the organization. And because our key guidance is that um, the organization, the in-house counsel um, can guard against greenwashing within their organization and then help the organization achieve legitimate net zero. Because, you know, as people may be aware, net zero is a little bit of a wild west at the moment. Um, so what it is, is and um, it's just one of those things in life that if you don't have a very clear definition, one person's legitimate net zero is actually another person's greenwashing. So what we want to do is enable that intelligence that the in-house lawyers have to both basically be looking at the law side of things, but also looking at the business side and 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 marry that with the, the absolute desire of the massive numbers of individuals in those organizations to do something meaningful. And because of the siloization and various other issues, often things don't happen at the pace that they want. So something that um, you know, people are probably aware of is there's, there's a, a, a massive and dangerous gap between pledges and action. So you know, lots of big corporates, lots of companies have made very laudable uh, commitments to what they're gonna do environmentally and net zero. And the evidence of the what they're doing to back that up with the kind of both the plans and the policies and the actual week to week, month to month action is this, that's a long way behind. And there's been some really good research done on this, which demonstrate that this is not just us kind of guessing. It's actually been it's been researched because, you know, when it comes down to it, the biggest risk we can face is of climate breakdown and ecological collapse. And in the shorter term, there are also other multiple risks which are direct to business just to, you know, pick up a few. There's um, what, uh, to a certain extent, Friends of the Earth are representing, which is what basically th this is happening to companies as well. So last year, um, the client Earth uh, referred Just Eat and Carnival Cruises, who were at that time uh, FTSE 100 and FTSE 250, um, to the uh, Financial Conduct Authority for their, uh, for basically um, breaches of um, the uh, carbon climate reporting. Um, but then also something that's actually world leading um, is that we've had the, com the UK Competition and Markets Authority launch its green claims code. Um, now, all of these things are things that the um, in-house lawyer needs to know about, both on a kind of defensive basis. They've got to make sure that their company isn't hold in front of the courts, uh, either the court, actual literal legal courts or the courts of public opinion. But then also it's they can go on the front foot. They can horizon scan. And because of their position where they look across the business at the center of it, it's actually quite a small function. But 
very influential and often sitting in both uh, significant project meetings, but also on the board. So they can take all that kind of, if, if we think of a Venn diagram of like, you know, business, legal and net zero, in-house lawyers are right at the centre of that Venn diagram. Um, I think something interesting that you mentioned just then was the need for the council to act on a defensive basis. So, of course, avoid a specific advertising campaign being um, brought to court over greenwashing, but also being on that front foot, because that's something I want to mention, sort of whether they're not only defensive, but working on culture change um, as well, because we've covered a lot lately on the importance of having climate aware boards. There's been a few studies on that recently and a joint commitment from headhunters here in the UK as as well. So in your experience working with in-house counsel, do they have influence over over the boards beyond you might want to avoid that one ad campaign? <laughs> well, yes. Um, and it's there's both the direct areas, but then there's also indirect. So directly they they have license to go and ask awkward questions, which like virtually nobody else in the organization can go to the CEO and go, ooh, I'm not sure we should be doing that, or actually we really should be doing this. That's actually, a lot of people don't feel empowered to make those points. In-house counsel do, it's literally their job. Um, now, the other side of it is that they are, um, they've got to make sure that they're uh, helping the board understand what its responsibilities is. So one of the things that actually a lot of uh, general counsel are actually also the company secretary. Um, so they define what's on the agenda often. Um, so that can be very powerful. Um, and it's also because effectively n not a lot moves in an organisation unless it's signed off legally. So another side of it, which is more kind of like detailed, but it can be really powerful, is that there's, uh, I believe you're also talking to the Chancery Lane project, who, are, uh, you know, have brilliantly identified the opportunity around ensuring that uh, contract clauses are climate friendly and environmentally friendly. Um, so again, you can you can do it through that way. And what it is, is but putting all this together, it can kind of like, create a momentum and then the, the you know the key thing is as well that because when it comes down to it in-house lawyers aren't seen as tree huggers um so if the uh you know this kind of like comparatively sober suited general counsel you know the, the most important lawyer in the business uh sits down with the ceo or some other senior leader and goes you know I'm really concerned about this, um, or I actually see there's a real opportunity here we're missing. They're going to listen to them because, and and with all due respect to actually all the sustainability directors and heads of sustainability out there, um, for those people, those people that are that first category in 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 my kind of five areas of climate action, they actually it's kind of uh, your job. To be doing that so people sometimes kind of like well of course you're going to say that so what what we need is actually to somebody to celebrate and back you up so basically there are our thing is is that when if any of our kind of champions who are joining our program say oh i'm a bit worried that I'm, maybe i'm going to be stepping on the toes of like our you know head of esg or whatever uh where actually it's the opposite you're actually this person's best friend because it's 
you're backing them up. You've got their back. Um, so it can be really powerful to help uh, with that in, in, in multiple different ways. Of course, and and you mentioned they're the people that are doing the first part of your five steps for for their day job, um, and that's really what we focus on here at ED. The sort of people that will be tuning into these podcasts um, every time we put them out, and something we hear from professionals in that space is, uh, you know, sometimes I'm the only one in my company, and it's really important for me to meet people elsewhere. Otherwise, it can feel um, mm. a bit difficult, or maybe we're the only business at this place in our sustainability. Um, journey and obviously on the lawyers for net zero site there's a lot of talking about how you can help counsel um, network and convene as communities as as well so you might even get the in-house counsel at competitor companies um, working together on these principles so I wanted to touch on why that is important. Well it's what we've got is um, there's so much people can kind of give and gain through collaboration. And I've, I, you know, having worked in the sustainability industry, I've seen that in, in some of the most hard nosed um, kind of competitive areas, such as retail, there has been in sustainability comp- uh, collaboration, where in other areas of those business, they're at each other's throats across the kind of like the, the retail divide. Um, so and by collaborating and, and convening, it, it, it kind of it provides so many benefits we see. Because the first thing is that it's a social thing. It gives people permission to take action. So that if you see that another in-house council is either just started on this journey, oh, wow, they've started as well. Great, I can start. Um, or they've taken a bit of a bolder step than you thought was possible. Ah, great, well, I, we need that as well. Um, so it's 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 whilst the core of this is in part peer to peer learning. So because what we do is we have the the core of what we do is these champions groups, um, which are basically facilitated um, uh, small group coaching, where we have one facilitator to four champions, and they meet every fortnight to kind of share their journey. Um, so they, they uh, kind of we have sprints basically. We have three of them a year. Uh, per, for each each of the groups, and they basically start off by um, creating a plan for what they're going to do for that next three or four months, and then what they get is through the program you get to learn from what your you know peers are doing, um, and if there is absolutely direct competition, sometimes we're a little bit careful around that, but mostly it's it's absolutely fine. But the key thing is is that actually what it can do is give accountability um, because. Except if it is, unless it is your day job, um, it's not seen as something that's high necessarily on the priority list. And because sustainability is generally something that needs to be dealt with by 2025 or 2030 or 2050, it's not. and, And these guys have the inboxes from hell at times. So how do you reprioritize? So one of the key things is by because you know that, oh, Oh, wait a second. Uh, it's 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 Monday morning, and you know on on Wednesday morning you've got like a champions group meeting. Like, oh, I said I'm going to do that work. You'll make sure you're going to do it because you want to do it because you've got your peers on that group. And also, it's really important that people can kind of share their triumphs and also frustrations because you know whilst there might be shiny sort of things said on all the corporate websites. When it comes down to it, it can be a bit of a battle in some areas, and that's just across organisations. You know, we know what it's like in life. Um, so 
and and then the other side of it is is obviously something that kind of to some extent the Chantry Lane project represents, which is sharing best practice. Um, because our narrative is is that um, effectively, if you think of something that needs to be done, well, probably somebody's done it somewhere in the world. So what it is is rather than reinventing the wheel, why don't you make it so that it's easily accessible? So Chancery Lane projects have done a great uh, job of basically getting those contract clauses and then putting them into on site. What we've got as well as uh, to support people in addition to the champions group, which is the core, is got a knowledge hub, which often actually points at Chancery Lane project uh, things, but also uh, other things will probably have somewhere in there something pointing at an ED, uh, ED page or whatever, ex as an example. Um, and then I think the final point I'd make actually is it's going back to what you were saying earlier, is that what can, can slow people down the most in taking action is the feeling that people have to plough a, a lone furrow. So the fact that we've got them all together, that means they, they can do something. Of course, and that's something we've been we've been seeing for years, really. Um, we've been going for more than 20 years. So obviously look back then and very few companies will have had more than just one or two people. So can definitely relate to that. Um, and you mentioned the Chancery Lane project there and you're right. That will be our third and final um, interviewee for this episode. So we'll come on to that very shortly. Um, but for this afternoon, Adam, I'm sure you're a very busy man, so I should probably let you get going and prepping some more of that that focus group stuff. And one final question point that I'd make is that if any of the listeners who are likely to be those people in that first category who, like me, uh, you know, we, this is our day job. It's how we make our living. If you want some extra buddies to support you in your journey, then maybe find Lawyers for Net Zero on a uh, website or LinkedIn and pop that over to your in-house counsel and um, your general counsel, in-house lawyers, um, because uh, I really hope that they could uh, help you in your journey. Great, well, thank you so much for your time, Adam. Brilliant. Big thank you once again to Adam, and we'll move swiftly on now to something Adam referred to a couple of times there, our chat with Ben Metz at the Chancery Lane Project. Ben is the project's executive director, overseeing its work with thousands of legal professionals as they draft precedent clauses around environmental issues, which are then made freely and publicly available to businesses. So that's businesses of all sizes and sectors can access that. And these clauses have already been downloaded more than 61,000 times. So are we at a tipping point for client and supplier engagement? Let's find out with Ben. Well, a very good afternoon to you, um, Ben. How are you? I'm great. Thanks very much for having me, Sarah. Oh, thank you for coming on. It's good to meet some new faces on the podcast. I know you haven't popped on um, before. So I guess for those at home and, and for me to, to recap, because I have lots of notes um, here, if you could tell us a little bit um, about the Chancery Lane project um, as an intro for those that might not have heard of it. Yeah, absolutely. So when people think about the intersection of the environment and law, they more often think about legislation as it comes down through policy, uh, transnational and then national legislation, as we've just seen uh, attempted and uh, brought to life through the COP process or through litigation, as we see in famous cases in the States, such as Juliana versus the United States, or more recently in the U in Europe, apologies, 
uh, related to the shell cases that have been going on. They don't think about the vast majority of law as it's practiced in the world being corporate law, corporate and commercial law, big law, transactional law, however you want to call it. It's the non-contentious bread and butter of the economy. It's the connective tissue between the economic actions. Um, it's what drives and cements most human activity across the planet, the process of contracting. Um, and then and then Ben, as executive director, I know you've been with the project since late 2020. So were you there since since when it was set up? Yeah, so actually it was um, uh, our founder and a member of the Stern Group, Matt Gingell, who attended a, an event at London Climate Action Week in 2019 and the light bulb went on on the train home. He's a he's a general counsel of a mid-size uh, investment fund uh, based down in Exeter. And he, he had this kind of epiphany moment coming out of London Climate Action Week 2019, which was if you change the contractual clause, you can change the world. And to understand the power and the potency of that statement, it's worth dwelling on how law the plumbing of law as it currently works. So lawyers generally work from standard form contracts. Those standard form contracts are held by standard form contract regulators around the world. So there are a small number of standard forms that lawyers across the world, the eight or 10 million lawyers that are practicing around the world work from. At the same time, lawyers cut and paste individual clauses to bespoke those standard form contracts. And there are two main repositories of contractual clauses that are broadly accepted as the go-to repositories around the world. So you have this remarkable system of law with a concentration of the processes and the templates and the content that drives contract law. And at the same time, you have a small number of very large law firms that execute these contracts around the world. So, so with those two observations, if you start to realize that changing and aligning with climate ambition, individual contract clauses, that may be a sentence, it may be a paragraph, or it may be a page, but if you can change the contract and insert it into the system, you have the potential to change the world. And that essentially is the insight that Matt brought to me and to a few other people uh, late summer 2019 saying, I've got this idea, why don't we run an event? So we ran an event. We didn't think anybody was gonna turn up because lawyers, we thought, didn't like to collaborate. They, uh, it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's a commercial competitive environment, the, se the law sector. We were, how wrong were we? We had, we had a, a waiting list pretty much running around the block. And we ran that event uh, in November 2019 at the offices of Thomson Reuters Practical Law in Canary Wharf. And the rest is history. Great. And it looks like things have been busy for you ever since. So shortly after that, I assume um, there was the launch of this Net Zero Toolkit. So a list of, of clauses, this open source resource that could be used. Um, and you said about, yeah, change the clause and change change the world. But was it a case of sort of before that toolkit was out there, a barrier being not having that open source info, not being sure about how to lay out climate related contract clauses. Was was that the main barrier? 
so we've been we've been building the plane as we fly essentially uh iterating uh on development so so the first set of clauses i think we had 26 clauses really importantly they're collaboratively developed so the ideas come from our participants the participants collaborate to develop the clause the clause goes through a peer review and editorial process which the vast majority of which sits with participants so it's a very different beast in the field of law from what people are used to and um, that those 26 clauses were launched uh, the week before lockdown at the end of february 2020 and we thought fantastic we've got something we're going to go for it right let's go start knocking on the doors of london law firms and then lockdown happened and we moved online and in many ways bizarrely covid has been the making of this organization because rather than being focused on a small number of large law firms in most likely the city of London, we've taken this thing globally. So in the last year, we've had 27,000 unique users of our content across 114 countries. We have 285 organizations, the vast majority of those large international law firms um, engaging and partnering with us. And we have about 1,500 uh, active participants in the process. So from February, we published and then were forced to go online. So we started to test and play with how we would take events online. And at that time, there were a lot of people emerging into this new online world and we rode that wave. So it's been it's been quite a journey that's led us to the months before COP26, we began the development of what we're calling our Net Zero Toolkit, which you can find on our website alongside our clauses, chancerylaneproject.org. And the toolkit is a set of pretty simple tools that any legal professional or any sustainability professional can use to understand how the individual clauses can be applied into the contracts that they, that they use um, uh, that they implement and that they, uh, if they're sustainability professionals, that they're directing their lawyers to, to write uh, on a daily basis. Um, we, we had quite a remarkable increase in interest over COP. Um, and to be absolutely honest, we're, we're sort of licking our, licking our wounds and taking a bit, of a, a bit of time to think about what's next because the scale of interest uh, far outstrips our ability to um, to supply, demand is out, outstripping supply, which is a wonderful situation to be in, but we're having to really think carefully about how we allocate our resources, what our priorities are, how we make the most impact as quickly as possible, because, you know, the urgency of the challenge that is facing us. Of course, I mean, it's always handy when there are tools that walk people, people through it and always collaboration is often cited as something that can unlock that as well. Um, and I was looking at the site and I noticed we'd, we're talking about um, in this episode looking at climate related law, but not everything on there is climate related. Um, there's stuff on there about other environmental impacts. So I wanted to pick your brains from your viewpoint and ask you, other than other than climate or net zero, what some of the issues you think businesses and, and lawyers are going to be pressing their suppliers and clients on this year? What What you're seeing brewing? Yeah, so that's an incredibly uh, pertinent point to our thinking at the moment. And I'm going to ask you and your 
listeners to just imagine a triangle and how we hold the tension across the uh, elements at each point of the triangle. The first is commercial viability, how a contract and the clauses within that contract can maintain relevance to a commercial environment, how they can be commercially acceptable and therefore deployable by any business or any law firm. The second is climate and environmental ambition. We'll unpack that one a little bit more in a second. But essentially, if you think about it, the more commercially viable in our traditional, relatively short term fiduciary duty world, current fiduciary duty world that we inhabit, if something is more commercially viable, you might think that it's going to be less environmentally impactful. So how do we manage this tension? And then the third point of the of the triangle is what is increasingly coming to the fore around just transition uh, or how we ensure a just and inclusive economy as we move from uh, a carbon heavy to a zero carbon economy. So how do we hold the tension between these three is, is a profound challenge uh, that we're struggling with and I'd, I'd encourage all of your listeners get your thinking caps on and come and join us chancellorlaneproject.org sign up uh, for our bi-weekly newsletter and 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 come along for the journey with us be we're a participatory project and we'd welcome your thoughts um so but within that i would say just transition um key issues are going to be coming to the fore the obvious one uh, is in supply chains where mm -hmm. you have this profound tension between policing a supply chain so that um, the purchaser can dictate environmental conditions. Uh, more often than not, will include termination clauses. However, more often than not, termination clauses hit the supplier end of a supply chain. And again, more often than not, at the supplier end of the supply chain are more vulnerable, more precarious, communities, economies, societies that need to be protected and supported in this transition. So how do we look at a just transition, supply chains being one point? And environmental issues, you can see it coming next, COP15 at the end of April in China. Let's hope it manages to go ahead and is hopefully the powerful bit of punctuation in in biodiversity policy and legislation that we need. But how do we think about biodiversity, associated land use, agriculture, supply chains, soft commodities, etc. within that context? What does that mean for contract law, for corporate and commercial law, for big law, how we want to describe it? Great. Well, lots of food for thought there. And yeah, definitely that's not the first triangle I've been thinking about this year. So whether it's the E and the S and the G um, and then I've I've heard as well about moving from the CS and R to CS and V, meaning created share value. So I'm sure I'll be having lucid dreams about triangles, Ben, <laughs> in the next few we're weeks. Here, we're here to help if you are. So, you know. <laughs> Great. Well, I think that's that's all the time we have for this part of the podcast, Ben. So thank you so much for taking the time this afternoon. It's a pleasure, Sarah. Thanks very much for having us. Thank you to Ben, our third and final guest for this episode. Um, I'm trying to collect my thoughts on this episode, but I don't know if after recording all of these, I feel more qualified to practice law or even less. I'm just <laughs> glad that I've stayed out of it. 
um, career-wise, but nonetheless it's promising to see this effort being made around making a sustainable future a legal priority, especially against, as you mentioned Matt, the backdrop of a lot of bad news in January and February so far. So thank you for joining Matt and I on this whistle-stop tour of Legal Net Zero. If you've enjoyed this episode, and we hope you have, you can stream all past episodes and sign up to make sure you never miss one in the future through the ED SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, Apple or Google. Um, And not to toot our horn too much, but the past episodes do include our daily show from COP26, COP26 Covered. We found out shortly before recording this episode that this has been shortlisted for two publisher podcast awards. Um, and we'll be finding out at the end of April whether our small but mighty team of three can top the likes of the New Statesman, The Telegraph in, and The Times. And in the meantime, we'll continue to be bringing you a new episode at least every fortnight, as well as all our other usual multimedia content on ed.net. I can give away a little bit about the next episode, and sorry for talking about this, Matt, but I feel like this should be my announcement, um, that it's going to broadcast in early March and will be a special for International Women's Day. And then the next one after that will be live from our Sustainability Leaders Forum in London, which we've just been in something of a planning meeting about. Um, Matt, are you all ready to return in person after being back online last year, or will it be a struggle for you to uh, get your pyjama bottoms off and your suit on? Yeah, I think the the, the pyjama bottoms thing will be fine. I think the the more it's going to be is is just integrating as a member of society again and especially in what's going to be a kind of really energetic lively crowd of like extremely passionate people and that's not to say I'm not passionate but um it's just quite a lot of conversation to be had over two days and I do feel I'm I'm going to be like I don't know I don't know how to small talk anymore I don't know how to I don't know how to ask questions anymore any person I really speak to now is my dog so all of this is going to, it's going to be a, a, a real baptism of fire, so my reopening back to society, I'm making it sound like I, I'm like a recluse, I'm, I'm, I'm not that bad at all. I was going to say, um, you went to COP and that had more people, but it also had more days, yeah. isn't it? No, and it will be fine, but um, I think, I mean, we did some, we did some, uh, a whole day of training at, at Faversham House a couple of weeks ago, and it felt like, just an afternoon of that felt like the end of like a two-day conference, you know, when you start to flag a little bit and you're a little bit tired, so I need to, I need to, I feel like I need to train for the for the forum, you know, get yeah. out there, go 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 see some people. But um, I'm I'm extremely excited about it. Um, the agenda's shaped up really well, um, and it's you know hopefully going to set the tone for uh, a month of great content from us on on business leadership. Mm. And I wanted to go through the basics of the forum quickly before we sign off. But obviously, further to Matt's point, there will be coffee served throughout. So hopefully, yeah. <laughs> we can all manage. very important. Um, it's taking place on the eighth and 9th of March at the Business Design Centre in London, where we were hosting pre-pandemic, and we're delighted to be back. We'll be uniting hundreds of sustainability and energy professionals on site, and there'll be online tickets too. Um, We've got more than 60 speakers lined up on our most diverse programme yet. Um, Our keynotes include We Mean Business Coalition CEO Maria Minelous and Environment Agency Chair Emma Howard-Boyd as well. There's also going to be a packed agenda of interactive workshops so you can co-create solutions and unlock sustainability opportunities in all aspects of your business. So we've got workshops on pretty much everything from communications to procurement, from fleet management to finance. Trouble with alliteration there on that last one. Um, So for full details about our forum and to reserve your tickets, head to event.ed.net slash forum. 
Once again, that's event.ed.net slash forum. I'm sure that time is going to fly by until then, and Matt and I have a whole lot of exclusive content to bring you in the meantime, so we had better log off and get cracking on some of that. But for today, thank you so much for tuning in to Sustainable Business Covered. But for now, it's a goodbye from Matt. Goodbye. And a goodbye from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.